Welcome to the Beyond the Box Score podcast, brought to you in part by Church Graphic Design. In this episode, I interview Coach Mike Jarvis. Church Graphic Design, founded by Alex Church, empowers college basketball coaches and executives in pursuit of their dream job. They specialize in creating personalized coaching portfolios, encompassing your coaching career, your biggest accomplishments, and your track record of winning at a high level. Forget a white page typed up Times New Roman resume. To set yourself apart from hundreds during the coaching carousel, work with CGD to set yourself apart in the interview process. Alex spent six years coaching in college as a student manager and as a graduate assistant at UAB under Rob Eason. I've personally known Alex since he was a head manager at Marshall under Dan D'Antoni. He's elite at what he does. Church Graphic Design has worked with the Wasserman Agency, numerous NCAA agents, NBA executives, and hundreds of D1 head coaches and assistants. It doesn't matter whether you're applying to coach at the high school level or a GM in the NBA. He will empower you and place you in the best position to succeed. Check out the show notes and shoot them a DM on Twitter at LLC. Be sure to use the promo code BOXSCORE to receive 10% off your portfolio. You won't be disappointed. Coach, how's it going? Fantastic. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, God is good. Coach, you want to give yourself a brief introduction to our listeners? Okay. Uh, uh, Once again, you know, I always tell people right away that I was born and raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So if I sound a little funny, um, you can blame you can blame my uh, northeast roots, but uh, the name is Coach Mike Jarvis, J-A-R-V-I-S, and uh, born and raised in Cambridge, Mass. Uh, went to school uh, up in the northeast. Attended Northeastern University. Uh, started coaching basketball uh, at Newton North High School as a sophomore basketball coach, and then. Uh, you know, I ended up was an assistant at Northeastern University while I was teaching at uh, Cambridge Ringin Latin High School. Um, was an assistant coach at uh, at Northeastern and at Harvard under Satch Sanders, uh, Celtic great, and uh, number sixteen Satch. And uh, then uh, I got the opportunity to get the job that I wanted when I first came out of college, which was the high school job, and. Uh, started teaching and uh, started coaching actually at, at the school I was teaching, which is Cambridge Indian Latin, where I graduated from. And uh, God sent me uh, some incredible players. Uh, the greatest names uh, were Patrick Ewing, Ramil Robinson. I had all kinds of, I mean, great players, great teams. And uh, went from there to Boston U and then to George Washington and then to St. John's and finished coaching at Florida Atlantic. So I Taught and coached for oh, 40 plus years, I guess. And I'm now living in uh, Boynton Beach, Florida. Um, written a couple of books and uh, trying to uh, launch a speaking business. And uh, hopefully uh, I can continue to uh, be around people that, that care about people and people that want to get better. And uh, maybe I can help them do just that. Well, I'm sure you can, Coach. And also, most importantly, I'm married. I've been married. I'll be celebrating, uh, my wife and I will be celebrating uh, 50, oh, geez, it's been uh, 
55, I think it'll be 55 years uh, in September. And um, the greatest wife in the world, uh, two kids. Uh, my son and I were the first African-American uh, father-son coaching team in Division One basketball. Uh, beautiful daughter, Dana, five grandchildren. And, um, you know, God has been good. As long as you remember the date, you don't have to remember how many years, but as long as you remember that date, that's the important part. <laughs> September 9, baby. <laughs> Coach, talk about growing up in Cambridge. Well, Cambridge was a special place, still is, but it was really special back then. It was, you know, I look back at my, uh, uh, my beginning, I look back at where I was placed as a youngster, and I couldn't have been uh, in a better place. Uh, Cambridge uh, was a was a, a, a city where, you know, you could go to any part of the city and feel welcome. And, um, you know, the blacks and the whites and the rich and the poor, and you know, got along well. Um, you know, we, it was it was unlike so many places today that, uh, you know, find themselves divided and separated and fighting and I mean, we, you know, everybody went to the school when you, that you were, uh, the, your neighborhood school. So it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, it, it was very integrated and, and people really cared about one another and loved one another. And, uh, uh, you know, your kids could go out and play and, you know, you'd call them at the end of the day and yell their names, hey, Mike, Dana, come on in. And they'd come in after playing, you know, uh, until, until basically dark time. You didn't have to worry about kids hopping on public transportation. Like my son, Mike, when he was in grade school, he used to take the, the bus to, from his, from North Cambridge into Harvard Square and then walk to the gym where he would be my ball boy. And, uh, you know, it was just a great time. And it was a, uh, you know, even though there was a lot of stuff going on in the, in the world and around the world and around I guess everywhere we we sort of was 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 sheltered from a lot of it just because of uh, the makeup of the city and the, the care that everybody got. You played at Northeastern, like you mentioned at the time, it was a Division II program under the late Duke uh, Dick Dukeshire. What made Northeastern the right school for you? Well, first of all, I it was the it was one of the few schools I could get accepted in, <laughs> and. Uh, it was also probably about the only school I could afford to go to because of the their co-op uh, plan. You would, you know, it was a five-year program, and you would go to school for a semester, and you'd work a semester, or you'd go to school two semesters and work a couple of semesters. So you're able to work um, and pay for your school as you went to school. So when you graduated, you didn't have a huge, huge debt to pay back, um, and that work uh, study experience. You know, really, I think sort of prepared you for life after college, and uh, and then of course, you know, Coach Dukeshire was, I mean, just a master coach. He was a Hall of Fame coach. He was a great teacher, great motivator, and uh, he gave me an opportunity to be part of the part of a, a a program and a team that was on the rise. And then eventually, uh, even though I was a pain in the neck as a player, he hired me as an assistant. Gave me my first, you know, college coaching job, which paid a whole whopping six hundred dollars a year, and uh, so I uh, 
I got my beginnings there and uh, I got my foundation from, like I said, a great teacher. He taught me how to teach and coach basketball. And I love the guy and, uh, you know, he, he, the results of, of, of the foundation that he built uh, uh, there today and uh, Northeastern is where it is basketball-wise because of Dick Dubshire. You know, I read you played football as a freshman, played baseball as well in <laughs> high school. If you were able to hit the curveball, do you think you would have pursued baseball? Oh, most definitely. That was my love. Uh, you know, I, I grew up, uh, we would we would take the baseballs different, uh, use different color tape. Myself and my buddy Teddy Killalay, we'd take up the baseballs and go out uh, into Hoyt Field in the you know, in the spring, which was really still winter, and hit the balls out and, and uh, painted. Uh, like I said, we had different color balls so we could find them in the snow. And uh, then in a hot summer, uh, you know, we'd be out there in the field and uh, used to go over to Fenway Park, pay 50 cents to watch doubleheaders and see, you know, just some of the greatest baseball players that ever lived play. I love baseball and uh, played Little League and Pony League in high school and and uh, I was a catcher and uh, a pretty good catcher, uh, not a good hitter. And uh, so, you know, you can't make the, uh, the pros unless you can hit. If you can't, if you can't hit the curveball well, then you're really in trouble. And I was bad at the curveball, but I loved baseball. And uh, my son played baseball as well, and he was a much better player than me, and he could hit the curveball. And I thought maybe he would make it. But, uh, but I certainly got a lot out of the game. And uh, I'd like to hope that I contribute a little bit as well. And you mentioned you've been with your wife for so long. I, I know you guys met in high school. When did you know that she was the one? Well, you know what? Um, very early on. I mean, we I moved in next door to, to my, my uh, uh, sweet high school sweetheart and future bride. I moved in uh, to, uh, next door to her when I was going into the, I want to say the ninth grade. And, uh, you know, it started out with us just talking and then taking walks. And, you know, before you know, we were dating each other and we were, you know, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend. And, and eventually, uh, in fact, uh, my last year in college, we got married. And um, uh, we started a family when I started teaching at, uh, at the high school after graduation. And, uh, you know, not only my the love of my life, but my best friend. And uh, like, you know, she would tell you, um, she earned uh, she earned a couple of degrees. Uh, she got her own and she got mine because she, did, she, she probably did more work than I did and certainly typed all my papers. And uh, it's just been a, that's been the greatest gift of all is having her. And uh, then she decided, you know what, I'm going to try and help this guy in his coaching career. And I can't tell you the amount of meals that she cooked for our teams and the amount of time that she spent, uh, you know, counseling and talking to our players and sort of getting them through some of their rough times as well. But, um, you know, I would always tell my players that the most important recruit you're ever going to make or get is your wife. So make sure you recruit well in that area, because if you do, you got a chance. We should all be so lucky. Yeah, so blessed, yes. What type of college playing experience did you have at Northeastern? Well, I, I often say that one of the reasons why I started to I coach was because I spent so much time sitting on the bench. 
um, when I went to Northeastern, I did not uh, receive a scholarship initially. I eventually worked my way all the way up to a half a scholarship, which was a big deal, to be honest with you. Um, you know, back then, uh, scholarships were divvied up. I mean, with a lot of guys, uh, especially the guys that commuted like I did, um, they would have half scholarships, quarter scholarships. Then there were a couple of guys that had full scholarships, but everybody had a little piece of the action. And, and what we all learned was that no matter how big a scholarship we had, we had a big part in the team. And that's what Coach Dukeshire instilled in each and one, every one of us. So I, I became sort of like the unofficial captain of the team. Uh, as time went on, I was uh, captain of the uh, third team because uh, we had three teams. We had the red team, which was the first team. The blue team was the second team. And then the green team, which was my team, was the third team. And we spent most of the time, most of practice, we were on defense and just beating up on the red and the blues and trying to get a, uh, once in a while, we'd get a, we'd get a bone thrown to us. We'd get a, a blue jersey or a red jersey, but it didn't last long. We'd end up back in the green jerseys. But we took a lot of pride. And, um, you know, I was called at one time by my teammates, Captain Darby, uh, you know, from Darby's Rangers back in the old days, the old TV show. And uh, and we, we'd, go, we'd get after it every day in practice. And, you know, it's 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 rewarding to even to this day to hear some of the guys talk about how we really helped to make the team special because of the, how, what we brought to practice each and every day on the defensive end. And it's probably why I really uh, was very partial to defense because I spent most of my time playing it. So I, I spent more time in the bench than on the court, but I was preparing for the day that I would coach. And uh, you know, every day after practice, I'd go home and I'd get my blue uh, uh, notebook out and I would write down the things that we did to practice and the key things that coach taught that day and put them in the book. and. That base became my teaching guide uh, in when I launched my coaching career. Now, if I'm not mistaken, after graduating, you joined the coaching staff at your alma mater under Jim Calhoun. Did you start off as a GA, a volunteer, restricted earnings assistant? What kind of position? Well, I actually started out as an assistant. Um, you know, once again, uh, the assistants back in those days, uh, you know, when I first became an assistant at Northeast under Coach Dukeshire, um, and then Coach Bob Bowman, um, you know, I was I was commuting from home. I was, like I said, making 600 bucks to coach. And um, and then eventually they got to this point where they had, um, I believe there was one full-time assistant, and then there was a part-time, and then there was a couple, another part-time. So I was basically in that part-time category. But working, working full-time basically. Um, and yes, I worked for coach Bowman as well. Duke Shire to Bowman and good Jimmy Bowman, um, was on, I played with Jim one or two years and, um, he went, he went to the FBI when, when coach Duke Shire went to Greece to coach the Greek national team. And, um, uh, that's when I thought maybe I'd have a shot at the head job at Northeastern, but, Back then, there weren't very many African-Americans, many black coaches. So I didn't get that opportunity. Um, uh, uh, Jim Calhoun did. And uh, Jim asked me to stay on with him. And I stayed with Jim for a year. And then I went to Harvard to work with Satch Sanders. What was it like to coach the freshman team? It was great, um, you know, because you were coaching, because you had your own team. 
And um, every day we would scrimmage against the varsity team. So every day my guys would get psyched up. I'd get them really fired up and we'd go after the varsity team. And in fact, I can remember many a time uh, Jim would get upset with us because we'd maybe win the scrimmage and uh, he didn't like to lose at anything. So, uh, but my guys love competing. And so I had my own team. So I'd, 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 I'd have my practice and then we would scrimmage against the varsity and then I would work with the varsity team. So, you know, you basically had two jobs built into one. You mentioned after five seasons at Northeast, you moved on to Harvard. What was it like coaching in the Ivy League back then? Well, what was the greatest part about coaching at Harvard was, you know, I would, I worked out a deal with the superintendent of schools in Cambridge and he would allow me to get, teach all my classes in the morning. And then I, at that afternoon, I would walk, go over to Harvard, uh, go into the office with Satch Sanders. That was the, I mean, that was the highlight of coaching at Harvard to be able to every day be in, in the office and then on the court, once again, coaching a, a freshman uh, or varsity team and then working with the varsity team and Satch. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was really part of the Celtics uh, when I was working with Satch because Red Auerbach would come over and watch practices every now and then. And some of the different Celtics guys would stop by. Um, so it was more than just coaching a, a basketball team. It was coaching uh, with, with an idol and a legend. And um, the Ivy League was, was, was really, I mean, it was, I mean, it was competitive. It still is obviously, but uh, at that time, um, uh, let me see, I'm trying to think of Rowley. I don't think Rowley was at Penn, but, um, uh, uh, oh, geez, Chuck Daly um, was coaching at Penn. Uh, of course, uh, you know, you had uh, 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 Princeton. Um, uh, you had, I mean, you just had, I mean, so many great, uh, really great coaches. And, um, you know, there are no bad Division One coaches anyhow. Uh, but, you know, when, when you get a chance to, to coach uh, with, uh, a guy like Satch to coach against, um, you know, like Pete Carrill at Princeton and Chuck Daly and those guys. I mean, it was it was intense. And, uh, you know, you're doing it with guys that, you know, had obviously tremendous um, workloads academically, but loved the game, and loved to play. And uh, most of you, a lot of your trips were uh, by bus. So, you know, you take two, three hour bus rides, play your game and bus home and get back into the into the gym the next day it was it was a lot of fun and you played on Fridays and Saturdays back then uh, so we'd play like Friday night game and then a Saturday game and uh and that's that was that was the Ivy League the staff was let go in 77 how did you take the news when you found out at Harvard well you know I was I was in line uh in line I thought to get the head job um, you know, I had the backing of Satch and everybody, you know, all the players and everything. And I thought I was going to become the head coach. I was getting ready for my first uh, real move from high school to college uh, and become a head coach. And uh, it didn't happen. Um, you know, at the last minute, um, the school decided to go in a different direction. And um, so it was one of the toughest days of my life when I got the phone call basically saying that I was not the guy. Um, I remember lying across my bed 
crying like a baby and my wife would come in and she said, listen, don't worry, God's got something better in mind. I didn't, I didn't know if I really believed it at the time, but uh, it, it was true uh, because, you know, the next year, uh, after a year out of basketball, I got the head job that I wanted in the first place, which was a job at the high school. And then of course, you know, with, with Patrick, uh, with Patrick and then Ramil, I mean, we had incredible success. So I was able to, you know, achieve uh, some wonderful things with some great kids at the high school. Talk about going back to coach high school. I know you were still teaching, but how different was it coaching high school than college, even though you might've had better talent at the high school you were at? <laughs> You're right about that. Um, how different it really wasn't really different it, because, you know, I, I, once again, what I had learned from coach Dukeshire was that basketball is basketball and it's all about building a great foundation. Um, it's all about getting the right players. It's all about putting the right pieces together and then teaching them uh, to try and perfect the roles or the gifts that God gave them. And uh, so it really wasn't, I never felt it was any different. In fact, I remember going from uh, coaching the high school team to have my first uh, head job in college, which was at BU, and basically doing the exact same thing that I did as a high school coach, running the same drills, uh, same practices, same offenses, same defenses. So, um, you know, we really didn't change things a lot. We just tried to do them a little better. Talk about, and we talked before we started recording about, you know, being an assistant coach. What was the differences you saw between being an assistant and a head coach? Well, as I was told many times, you know, assistants make suggestions. The head coach makes the decisions. And I never had a problem as an assistant making suggestions. In fact, I probably made too many, probably spoke too much. Um, but I did because the people that I worked for and worked with listened to me. Um, as a head coach, you know, you've got to take those suggestions in, run them through your own mind, see if they fit with what you really believe and what you want to do, and then you decide to either do it or not. So, you know, you, I think that the that that's the biggest difference to the, the suggestions, decisions, but also just, you know, uh, you've got that many more people now that you've got to communicate effectively, effectively with. And ultimately, eventually, the communication becomes probably one of the most important things that a coach, that a leader can do. And I know when I, I talk to groups and talk about uh, leadership and talk about uh, uh, winning, communication is one of the C's that I always emphasize and, and really exaggerate upon. I'm curious. I know people like Bill de Blasio, Ben Affleck, and Matt Damon attended that high school. I'm curious, did you teach any of them or cut any of them from the basketball program? Well, you know, you mentioned de Blasio. I, I've never met, I never even knew he was at the high school, to be honest with you, until somebody, um, I think it was Sam Albano, a legendary, uh, uh, basketball guy in New York said, you know, did you know that uh, I talked to the mayor and he said that uh, he lived in Cambridge, uh, played with Pat Patrick Ewing, and you cut him from the basketball team. And I said, well, really? Maybe he had a different name back then. Maybe because I don't remember ever uh, uh, a de Blasio uh, back in the old days, uh, to be honest with you. So I'm just going to be totally honest. Um, 
you know, I don't remember uh, ever, uh, ever, ever meeting the gentleman. Um, but the other guys, you know, I, I tell stories about how they were students at the high school. In fact, my daughter used to be in um, the drama on the drama team with them, and they had the they had maybe the best drama uh, program in the United States of America. And I, I never really saw those guys much in class. I think they cut most of my classes um, to, to go across to the, uh, uh, where they used to do have the drama uh, uh, program. And I probably, I'm sure I, I flunked both of them a couple of times, but uh, uh, I, I, my, my, the way that I probably remember those guys, particularly uh, Matt, was years, when I was one year, I was coaching at uh, at St. John's, and I got a phone call from a friend of mine on a Friday night, in fact, the night before a Connecticut game, and he says, "I got somebody I want you to talk to on the phone." I says, "Who?" He says, "Oh, one of your former high school uh, students." So I says, "Listen, I don't really have a lot of time, but give me the phone." So I, uh, I get on the phone, and the person says, "Hi, this is Matt." I says, "Matt, Matt, who?" He says, "Matt Damon." I says, "Come on, man, stop playing with me." I got a big game tomorrow. I haven't got time for this. He says, yeah, it's Matt Damon. So he, he ended up telling me a story. He says how he was pitching in, in, in the Little League, and uh, his dad thought he was going to party someday pitch for the Red Sox. And this kid gets up and hits this home run off him and beats them in the, in the All-Star game. And, you know, he went home. I think his dad said, gee, Matt, you know, maybe baseball's not your game. I don't know. So I, I always tell people that I think that's what launched Matt's uh, uh, acting career. He went from pitching baseballs, getting home, getting a home run hit off him by my son. Uh, that ball, which by the way, I have. And if somebody would like to uh, buy it on eBay, uh, I might end up putting it up there someday. But, um, but anyhow, Matt Damon, um, you know, he was, uh, that was his, his thing. He, he was a, before he started acting, he played baseball like my son. And uh, he was pretty good as well talked about earlier Patrick Ewing Ramil Robinson you have guys like Carl Hobbs uh, as players oh, yeah. that you coached and mentored and I'm, I'm curious aside from natural ability what made them such great players well you know Patrick and Ramil I, I just think that those two guys their work ethic was incredible I mean I look at uh, Giannis uh, the Greek freak and how he plays every game like it's going to be his last game every possession is like going to be the last possession of the game i mean he just plays with reckless abandon and that's what Romeo and patrick did carl on the other hand was smooth he was you know he was like that 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 guy he glided along the floor you know and he's probably the only guy that i coached during my coaching career where i remember telling my assistants once don't worry about how hard he practiced he didn't love to practice like Romeo and patrick did but boy when the lights went on he was he was special and um so th those guys were different in that respect but they were the same in the respect that they knew how to win and they knew what it took to win, and they were just extremely intelligent basketball players. You most of the time one step ahead in terms of the plays that were being made on the court. So um, all champions, um, to be honest with you, and um, great teammates, and uh, loved coaching each and every one of them. And uh, the 
try to stay in touch with those guys as often as I can. Did opposing fans really rock the team bust when you guys were on it? Oh, more than once. We got we got we got our windows shattered more than one time. In fact, one night after playing at Brockton High School, on our way home after a victory there, we uh, bus uh, somebody threw a brick through our windows, shattered the windows, and some of the glass, the splinters from the glass, in fact, uh, uh, went into uh, Kevin Headley, one of my players' eyes. We had to go to make an emergency stop at the hospital to get the glass taken out. And uh, so we had we had windows uh, broken back then. It was, and we had tires slashed. I mean, we were public enemy number one. Wherever we went, um, the gym was sold out, whether it was the uh, high school gym in, in Quincy or Weymouth, or whether it was the Boston Garden, it was a sellout crowd. And the games were intense. Uh, it was also, it was during the time of forced busing in Boston. Um, even though we were in Cambridge, really quote unquote suburb, um, but we would, as we traveled to the different uh, uh, towns and places, I mean, a lot of the folks that, that lived in those towns had basically uh, moved out of Boston and, um, you know, weren't very happy about the busing situation. So there was a lot of other stuff going on other than basketball and the fact that they wanted to beat the number one team in, in the state, maybe the number one team in the country. Um, you know, there was, there was, there was still a lot of, uh, they looked at, like, you know, we'd go into some of the suburban towns that were predominantly almost exclusively white. And, you know, it did become at times a black versus white thing, even though our teams were, we were never, we, we always had a little bit of flavor. We, we weren't totally black, but we were we were pretty black, and um, and the games were intense. I mean, there were fans fighting in the stands. Uh, there were games where folks would come to try to get underneath uh, player skin. Like you know, uh, one one night I remember uh, we were playing. I think it was in Andover, Massachusetts, and somebody came in, in a gorilla outfit. Another night, somebody threw banana peels on the floor. And then there a lot of crazy stuff went on. I mean, you know, we'd get phone calls in the middle of the night uh, with threats from people saying, hey, if you come to our town tomorrow, you know, you, you're going to get hurt, that kind of thing. And um, it was crazy. I had a guy who used to come and sit at the end of my bench who had a black belt. And if, as soon as things got a little bit, you know, people got a little bit crazy, he'd get up and he'd be ready to go. We never, thank God, had, had to had to utilize him, but uh, it was intense. It really was. Sure sounds like it. How difficult was it to leave, to get, rejoin the college ranks? And I'm curious, did you have any other opportunities that you had turned down before taking over at Boston University? Um, you know what? I had a lot of opportunities to be an assistant coach in college because people wanted to recruit uh, you know, my players, particularly Patrick. So I, I had some really, I mean, ridiculous offers when Patrick was playing. Um, but I didn't want to uh, uh, take a job with, because I could deliver Patrick, which I wouldn't have tried to do anyhow. But so I never really, the, the first real job opportunity that I had was uh, to be a head coach was Boston U. I remember 
I had just come back from England. Uh, I had taken my team to London, to England, and to Wales on a basketball culture uh, uh, trip. And I remember getting home, and I remember on the way home hearing that um, uh, coach uh, at BU was was getting was fired. And then I got a phone call from um, from Satch saying, "Hey, how would you like to be the the head coach at uh, at BU?" And I said, "Geez, I'd love it." So he says, well, you know, expect a phone call. Um, you know, the AD, Rick Taylor, called me up. Uh, I met with him and his assistant, Larry Fudge. Um, and one thing led to another. Before you know it, I'm meeting with uh, President Silver. And, um, you know, I remember when Rick uh, brought me over the morning of the press conference, uh, he had done such a great job. They didn't know who was, who, 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 who was going to be hired. They didn't know why I was even at. And to, you know, somebody figured out, hey, maybe it's maybe it's Mike Jones. And uh, so Rick Taylor uh, gave me my first head coaching job at the collegiate level. And uh, I inherited a, a really uh, a great group of guys. Uh, uh, you know, I had um, Rick Patino had recruited some of the guys. Um, uh, in fact, three of our starters, Rick Patino uh, had recruited and they had played for at BU under Rick. And then we came, then, then Jeff Timberlake and Tony DaCosta um, uh, were uh, coming in. And so I, I inherited a really good group of players. Uh, one of my star player, my leading scorer was Dredrick Irving, Kyrie Irving's dad. And uh, so, you know, we had guys that, that knew how to play, um, really wanted to win. And, but yet the system that they had played under uh, was maybe just didn't fit them. So this, the more simpler system that I brought uh, seemed to fit the players uh, better. And, uh, you know, and then we, we really cranked it up on the defensive end. And uh, if, if Reggie Lewis wasn't at Northeastern, we probably would have been in the NCAA tournament every year. We had to wait uh, till he graduated to beat them to get to the NCAA. And, uh, but eventually we did. And, uh, those were some battles as well back in the day at, when, when Northeastern and, and BU played each other. Had some great, great battles. Uh, I can only imagine. You know, you became the Terriers' all-time winningest coach in five seasons, amassing a, a 101 and 50 record NCAA tournament appearances in 88 and 1990. Who did you have on your coaching staff? And what did the American East look like back then? Who were some of the other head coaches in the league? That's a good question. I'm going to have to get this old, this brain thinking a little bit. But my number one guy when I was at Northeastern, my top assistant, in fact, he went with me to GW as well, was Bill Herrien. Uh, Bill Herrien is still coaching. He's at University of New Hampshire. Great coach. Um, I hired Bill. Bill was my first hire. Um, you know, Carl uh, Hobbs uh, and uh, coached with me at, at, at Boston U. Um, um, I, uh, and then, you know, we had, uh, those, were the, those were the main guys. And I had a guy by the name of Ed Myers, who was primarily a recruiter, uh, Washington, D.C. guy. He had worked at Georgetown, and he really did a great job in terms of recruiting. Um, I'm trying to think. Did I hire Scotty at BU? No, I think Scotty beat joined me at at, uh, at GW. But um, and then I had some 
um, young um, uh, guys that would come in and volunteer, Paul Biancotti, in fact, ESPN, <clears throat> um, Paul had, um, I still mad at Paul for being, for uh, helping Ohio State beat St. John's uh, when he was an assistant um, at, at, at Ohio State. And uh, Paul Biancotti um, was a volunteer assistant who worked full-time hours, but made zero. And I remember after the first year calling Paul in and saying, man, you did such a great job. I'm going to triple your salary. He looked at me, he laughed. He says, yeah, three times zero is zero. I says, you're right. But, uh, you know, the, the experience he got, um, you know, put him in a position where he could eventually get hired as an assistant at BC and then eventually at Ohio State. And then eventually he became a head coach at Wright State. And then now he's, uh, you know, really he's like the top high school guy and uh, with ESPN. So I had some good, really good, young, aggressive assistant coaches um, who, you know, uh, communicated well, not only with me, but with the players, good teachers. What was it like coaching your son and was there any chance that he was going to play anywhere else or was it kind of a foregone conclusion that he would play under you? Well, you know what? It's really funny. I, I, I don't, I think in his mind, he always wanted to play for, for his dad. Um, in fact, um, when we took our team to England, uh, uh, he was going and he was going to his junior year. So I took all the returning guys that would be coming back on the trip overseas and so the, the first year that he was going to actually be on my team and not on a freshman or a JV team was would have been that year that I went to BU so I go to BU and um, he stays obviously at the high school and then he went to prep school at Avon Old Farms and then he comes to BU I, in his mind the only only guy he ever wanted to play for was me so he he came to BU um, and you know, uh, and a similar situation happened just when he was going to probably get a lot of minutes playing for me. I went to GW. He said, i ah, not going to get away that easy. So when, when he graduated from BU, uh, you know, he, he, he and his, he and his agent, his mother, uh, negotiated a contract, uh, <laughs> with GW and me. And, uh, he came and joined me at GW. That was 1993. His first year with me at, the, at GW, we went to the, uh, NCAA tournament, went to the Sweet 16. And I remember coming out uh, with, with him, walking out with him in, in front of 40,000 fans in Seattle when we faced the Michigan Fab Five. That was year number one. So uh, we had a, you know, we had an incredible time together. We won some championships, cut down some nets, you know, won the Big East tournament championship, went to the Elite Eight, uh, should have went to the, could have gone to the Final Four. And uh, like I said, I, I really thought that the day would come when I would, I would give up the reins as the head coach and become his assistant coach. That was sort of my dream. Um, but like I said, that was my plan. wasn't God's plan. You know, you talk about in 1990, you accept the head coaching job at GW in our nation's capital. What was it about GW that made you leave New England and how instrumental was Red Arback in that decision? Well, I think, well, first of all, um, the guy that recruited me 
to, to GW and convinced me to take that, make that move was Bob Chernak. He was the vice president at GW. Previously, he had been the vice president at Hartford and we would play Hartford uh, and we got to know each other. He got to know me as a person, as a coach uh, from our days back at, at Northeastern in the uh, North Atlantic Conference. And so when he went to GW, I remember him saying, you know, I'm going to come back and recruit you someday. And so he did. And, um, you know, after, you know, a lot of midnight phone calls, uh, my wife and I decided, you know what, maybe a change would be good. Let's, let's give it a shot. Uh, life is short. I I don't think I ever thought I'd be around this long, but uh, so we decided to go to uh, to take the move. And obviously, you know, you go into the nation's capital uh, to work. You you know, we ended up living in Maryland, had a beautiful home in Maryland. Um, my son joined me on my staff. Uh, so and my and my daughter I ended up coming back and going to school at GW, getting her master's. So the family was together intact. Um, in fact, we would travel most of our trips. There'd be at least three of us, if not all four of us on the trip. And um, so it was it was special. And then, like I said, we lived in uh, about a 30 minute ride, 20 minute ride from home to school. And, uh, you know, every time I would drive into D drive into DC, come over the over the bridge, uh, whether it was the Roosevelt or the Memorial Bridge, I, you know, you just see the, the Capitol and the monument and Jefferson Memorial and, you know, Lincoln Memorial, et cetera. I mean, it was just a, it was a special place to, to live and to work. And, um, you know, probably, I mean, in hindsight, I probably should have just stayed at GW, but the bright lights of New York got a hold of me. So I, I took that trip, but um, it was a great place to work. The people were fantastic. The president, the vice president, um, you know, I had a great staff, uh, great academic advisor and Karen Urkel and uh, great kids. And uh, we had eight wonderful years. Um, found a great church home, St. Paul's AME. And, um, you know, it was a it was a great time in our lives. One of the best. Was Red Arbach instrumental, though? Or I know you mentioned you had a previous relationship because he would come to practices. You guys would play in the Boston Garden and what have you. Yeah, I, I think I think he was, uh, to be honest with you. Of course, Red would never say, hey, Mike, I got you the job. But I think Red had a lot to do with it. Um, when, you know, in fact, uh, you know, there's a, there's a Red Arbach seat in the uh, Smith Center that nobody can sit in. I think it's painted gold. And, um, and Red uh, would come to the practices. Uh, we would meet every uh, spring and just talk about philosophy and just how to manage a team. And, and you know, I'd go to some of the uh, Chinese lunches that he, he would host and have with his buddies in DC. And uh, I think he, behind the scenes, did a lot and basically, uh, you know, totally convinced the folks at G, at GW that I was the right guy. I don't know if if if, if I would have got the job with without him, and I don't know exactly how much he did, but I know he was instrumental because I know that they respected him so much and listened to him. And if he said, "Hey, this is a good guy, and this guy can coach, he can help you win," then you know what? That sure went a long way. You talked about coaching your son, being the first 
black father and son coaching duo in NCAA Division One history. Was it coach or dad? What, what did he call you? It was mostly dad. Um, you know, it was dad, and um, and I'm glad it was um, because you know you you think of uh, some of the most meaningful words in 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 the dictionary i think of, of his dad is one of them um you know uh so it was always dad and uh the players never ever um uh thought uh, anything of that uh, that was us i mean it was you know we were father son first and yes we were coaching uh, together but it was always dad i'm glad it was you know, in only a few seasons, you had GW ranked nationally, making NCAA tournament appearances on a year-in, year-out basis. How were you able to have what seemed like immediate success in Foggy Bottom? Well, you know, it's really funny. Um, it's not funny, but um, we had, I, I, I think, once again, when I, I remember taking over my first team, and how hungry they were to win. And it just seemed like once again, it was just what I, my style and my way of coaching and my philosophy fit them very, very well, similar to BU. And um, so, you know, we, we, we won right away. Uh, in fact, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, maybe our first year we went to the NIT and um, you know, that, that was a big, big deal um, for GW. And um, so I, I inherited the right type of guys, guys that fit my style, my system. And I was able to coach them up. They were able to make me look better. And together we uh, started to build something pretty good. And then we got really blessed. We, um, uh, I, I, my assistant, assistant at uh, Ed Myers, who was with me at, at BU, um, uh, was able to help us. Uh, he discovered Yinka Dare. And Yinka was a, a Nigerian monster. I mean, he was, oh, he was chiseled. And uh, when he dunked the ball, the whole gym shook. And uh, people were afraid to play against Yinka. And uh, so, you know, he gave us an identity and then Scotty Beaton, who was my assistant, uh, a couple of years later, uh, opened up some international doors for us, and we started to recruit internationally. In fact, I remember one year we had 11 players um, from nine different countries on our team. And, uh, you know, we were getting players now from uh, Belarus, from Portugal, uh, Spain, Israel, you name it. We were, they were coming from everywhere. And, uh, you know, the word got out that GW was a great place. If you're an international player and you wanted to play in a winning program, you might want to think about GW. So we started to have a lot of success internationally. And uh, that kept us on the map. And, uh, and you know, and once you're winning and if you can win consistently, people want to come play for you. Then we were able to get, you know, some really good uh, talent out of the uh, D.C., Maryland area. Um, something that uh, was really not, not, not didn't happen too often because most of the great players from the DC area 
in Maryland went to either Maryland or, or Georgetown. So, you know, Vaughn Jones was uh, uh, a high school All-American play. He came to play for us. And, and then we started to have some success recruiting kids out of Baltimore. And, you know, we had uh, uh, Shantae Rogers, to me, the greatest little guy, probably one of the greatest little guys ever played the game of basketball, played for me. And uh, Kwame Evans, uh, came to play from Baltimore and Patrick Montgomery, and Mike King. I mean, so we, we, we opened up a pipeline, pipeline, uh, uh, with Maryland. And that was mainly due to one of my assistant coaches, uh, who came with me, Kevin Clark. He had a great relationship with, uh, the, the Maryland AAU coaches. So, you know, what happens in coaching is your assistants open up some of these doors for you with their, through their relationships. And before you know it, you're getting kids that normally you wouldn't get. And that's, that's sort of like how GW really uh, worked at work, how it, how it came about uh, to be so successful. You talk about leading the Colonials to three NCAA tournament appearances, including that Sweet 16 and 93 with your son on staff. Uh, you know, that's probably the Colonials' best tournament performance. What was it like to be a part of that run? And, and what was your game plan for that Michigan Fab Five? Well, that was magic. That was a magical run. It was a, uh, uh, I mean, I, it's, it, I can't even, it gives me goosebumps just to think about how that all happened. I mean, it's, I look back at that year, it was 90, it was the 93 season. Uh, we're like, oh, we're like 500, like we're like 10 and 10, like maybe nine and 10. We're going to play at Rutgers and we win the game in the last second on a, on a 94 foot pass that uh, Bill Brigham, who had played for me at BU and transferred to GW, made to Yinka Dare to tie the game. We're going to win that game. That same night, my dad passed away. In fact, I think my dad threw the pass. And um, we win that game. And then we go on a really incredible winning streak where the last team selected in the NCAA tournament, we get sent out. Um, out west, so we're in Arizona, and we—I mean, we, we play against uh, let's see New Mexico, who was the five seed. We were the twelve. That's why the twelve seeds always bet the twelve seeds. So we uh, we beat New Mexico, and then we got a real break. Uh, Southern University, predominantly black school, uh, upset Georgia Tech, and uh, so we're now playing Southern. Okay, a team that we would play ten times if we could to go to the Sweet 16, and we beat them pretty good. So now we're on our way out to Seattle to play against the Michigan Fab Five. And, um, you know, no pressure. Uh, we are, I mean, I can't tell you how big an underdog we were. So we're going to play the Michigan Fab Five, Chris Weber and Jalen Rose. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, so we just go, we, you know, we're down early in the game. The CBS announcers are saying, you know, this is going to be a slaughter. And uh, we, we said, listen, we came here to, to win. So let's, let's press them. Let's, let's, let's put our full court press on them. And we did. And uh, they started throwing the ball away. And before you know it, we actually, I think, took the lead in that game, maybe too early with a couple minutes to go. And if we'd done a better job boxing out on some free throws that they missed, we might have won that game. And uh, but 
we missed, they missed free throws. They got some offensive rebounds, put them back in, uh, you know, and uh, I think Juwan Howard may have got one of, one of those and uh, uh, Chris Weber. And uh, they ended up beating us in that game. And that was the year they went on to uh, lose to North Carolina, I believe, in the championship game. But um, what a ride. Uh, Cinderella all the way. Uh, that's a Cinderella season. You know, their season was eventually vacated. Did that make the Sweet 16 loss sting any more or any less? No, no. I mean, you, you know, um, no, it didn't make it any more or any less. It was, it would, it could never be any better than it was, and it could never be any, any less uh, exciting than it was. It was just an incredible ride that you wish that everybody could take at some point in time, but very few teams ever get that opportunity. We were one of them. Honestly, much appreciated. So true. You know, your GW team upset number one ranked UMass, beat them again at their place 10 days later in 95. And then after JMU and Rutgers stormed the court this past season, I'm curious, how wild was it to be a part of a court storming in 95? And were you able to meet President Clinton? You know, it's, it's, that was another one of those special days. Um, in fact, I have some of those pictures hanging up on my wall. Um, you know, uh, John Calipari hated to play at, at, at GW. For whatever reason, the GW teams always gave his teams a lot of problems, even before I got there. And so they come in on a snowy um, uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton and his daughter Chelsea come to the game. They take over my sister's uh, box, which was in the corner of the stadium um, by eminent domain. So they're sitting there watching the game and um, uh, we play inspired, incredible basketball and we end up winning the game, comes down to the last possession, okay, of the game uh, before the game is decided. And once again, I've never been part of a, uh, a, a game where the courts stormed the fans, but boy, they, courts, they stormed the court. And I, you know, I'm pumping my fists. I'm all excited. I, I actually uh, uh, regretted being so emotional after the game because I forgot all about going down to congratulate uh, John Calipari, who, uh, you know, was a, obviously still is a great coach. And, um, and I hope he's forgiven me for that. But um, that was that was just all emotion. And then after the game, uh, President Clinton came down to the locker room, and um, I've got some pictures with him uh, and the team, and you know. So that I mean, and then of course uh, it was like I said, it, it was national. It was a national news. Uh, it would have been just the fact that he was there, but to beat the number one team in the country. Uh, in while he was in attendance, made it even extra special. So could never ever see the replays from that enough. It was great. Coach, this is a question I've been really looking forward to asking you because it was the first time I had gone to a college game. What type of politics went into the BB&T Classic as far as which conferences referees were used, how much the bigger teams like Georgetown and Maryland got paid? I, you know, I never realized kind of the – stuff going on behind the scenes for that kind of tournament? 
Well, you know, it's really funny. I, I probably don't even know some of those answers myself. I just know we were so happy to be a part of it. And the fact that we would get a chance to play against Maryland. Uh, Georgetown never played in that. Uh, you know, they, they basically shied away from playing against GW because uh, years before GW was starting to get a little bit too close uh, to them uh, on the court. And uh, they used to have a lot of brawls at their games. And so they never really played. And then G uh, even to get Maryland to play against Georgetown, it took a, almost an act of Congress. So, uh, but, but Maryland agreed to play. Gary Williams agreed to play. Um, we beat them a couple of times in that tournament. And, um, you know, uh, had some really good games there. Won the, won the class, won it a couple of times. And uh, so... Uh, as far as, you know, what teams got, I don't even, I don't know. I, I think it was equal. I think each team got maybe 50 grand, whatever it was, the uh, number 50 grand or so. But the money, it was basically the money was used for charity. To the, it was raised for charity. And uh, they would, most of the money, if not all the real money went to charity. And, um, you know, it was a great tournament. Uh, because it did bring, gave, gave a school like GW an opportunity to play against uh, some really big name schools. You know, aside from the success you had at GW, you helped out with the U.S. under 22 national team, you know, but after yeah. compiling a, a 143 and 100 record at GW, you moved on to St. John's and became a head coach in the Big East back when it was really, you know, the Big East. Talk about some of the giants of the profession who coached in that league and what those conference meetings were like. Well, you know what? Um, it was a league of giants. Um, great college teams, great college coaches. I mean, you talk about Hall of Fame coaches. Uh, you're talking about, you know, and I, I, I'll leave out some names, but I mean, you're talking about people like John Thompson and, Jim Beheim, um, you know, uh, oh, geez. I mean, eh, oh, um, when I first went there, I'm just trying to think the Big East. Um, who was that? Providence, 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 Providence. Oh, please forgive me. But um, you just, I mean, it was. I mean, every night, you know, and then uh, that you went out to play. I mean, um, uh, you know, um, you knew that not only you were going to play against a great team, but you were going to coach against a great coach. Um, my buddy down at Villanova, um, Jay Wright, uh, was a young, um, upcoming coach uh, at the time. Um, and obviously he's turned into a Hall of Fame coach. I mean, just one of the best coaches of all time. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think because we had a couple of people that were coming into the league uh, as I was leaving, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Huggins, and, uh, you know, with his team. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was battle royal every night. Um, and the different the thing about the game back then, as opposed to now, which I think made it even more challenging, was that there were so many different styles. Today, 
most teams play pretty much the same way, do the same things. Back then, everybody seemed to have their own special niche. They did, I mean, you know, you had teams that played real slow, slow down. You had teams that pressed full court. You had teams that half court trapped you. Everybody seemed to be a little bit different back then. So you had, your game preparation, I think, was was even more difficult back then because you had to prepare for all kinds of different schemes and different uh, systems. Today, it's very simple. Most teams are very similar. So I think preparation today might be a little different, might be actually a little easier, uh, but you got to prepare more for the individuals today than you did back then. Talk about the atmosphere of coaching in the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, I know that it, you led them to the Elite Eight in 99 with guys like Ron Artest and Thornton. Uh, how wild was that first season at St. John's? Well, I put, you know what? I, in retrospect, I probably should have quit coaching. I wrote a book, did a movie, and I don't know. Uh, it might have been the original. Maybe, we would, maybe that would have been called The Circus. I don't know, but it was wild. Um, I had a great group of guys that loved to compete. And on the court, they were as together. I mean, it's like the five became one off the court. I mean, we had more battles. I mean, we would, we had more fights and more crazy stuff going off the court than you could ever imagine. Um, and yet on the court, they played like, like they were all brothers, okay, which they were on the court. Um, and, you know, so obviously the goal at St. John's was a little different. The goal was to try to win a national championship. And uh, I, I thought a couple of years we had a chance maybe to do that. Uh, you just needed a little bit better break here or there. But um, to play in, in Madison Square Garden was special. Uh, they call it the world's greatest arena, and it, and it is. Um, at least as far as a, a major arena goes, I think the the greatest place that I ever took a team to play in was probably Cameron, uh, indoor. Um, but I think that uh, if you had to play in a NBA arena, you, you would pick Madison Square Garden. Um, as big as it was, it never ever seemed to be too big. I mean, it had a college kind of an atmosphere to it. Um, we drew great crowds, you know, 18,000 folks, most, you know, a lot of games. Um, and the home, they were for the home team. I mean, that was New York's team. And uh, in fact, when we were doing really having great success, the Knicks were, you know, sort of like just okay. And uh, so we really captured the attention of New York uh, maybe more fully than normally you would or should. Um, so we became New York's team. And, um, you know, we were there during some interesting times, you know, 9 11. Um, you know, occurred during my time there. And, um, you know, so I'll never forget those days either. Your team eliminated a Bob Knight coached Indiana team, a Gary Williams coached Maryland team. What type of relationship did you have with those guys? Well, you know, I knew those guys um, and they, they knew me because they recruited my, they recruited Patrick, um, you know, when he was in high school and Ramil and, uh, so tremendous respect, I think, uh, would be the best word to describe how we, we, we all felt for each other. We really respected each other and each other's programs and the ability. Bobby Knight, um, I 
uh, attended my first basketball clinic was a Bobby Knight one-man clinic in Framingham, Massachusetts. And I remember buying his booklet, his defensive defense wins booklet. And I remember basically taking that, that his philosophy, combining it with Dick Dukeshire's and eventually making it into Mike Jarvis's. And, you know, so Bobby Knight was always somebody that as a, particularly as a coach, I mean, as a teacher of, of defense, I looked up to like you wouldn't believe. And, um, you know, to have an opportunity to coach against him, which happened a couple of times, uh, once in the NCAA tournament and then once in the NIT, and to win both games uh, made it even more special, um, to be honest with you. Um, so, you know, uh, Bobby Knight, you mentioned Bobby Knight, Gary Williams. Gary Williams was a, was actually a, um, a assistant, I'm sorry, head coach at one time at Boston College when I was coaching in, in high school. Um, you know, Gary um, obviously went down to, to Maryland and needless uh, to say, we know what he did there. So Gary, I always had tremendous respect. Got to know Gary really uh, well. Uh, relation. He was uh, also had uh, the same agent that I had, uh, Rob 80s, God rest his soul, uh, was good friends with Gary and and there would be times in D.C. when when uh, uh, the coaches would get together and just just fellowship a little bit, not even around basketball, just having a good time. So it was a great, great place to be. Um, you know, you're in the land of giants, you know, with John and with Gary. And, um, you know, uh, kind of special. Made your job difficult because you, you knew you weren't going to recruit those guys, not for the big name guys, but... You know, give it a shot anyhow every now and then. No doubt. You know, 2003, you guys beat Duke in the Garden. You know, I'm curious what kind of memories you have from that game. You know, of all the teams, the majority of the teams that I had that went against Duke, it might have been the team. It might have been the time when when a victory against Duke would have been least expected. Um, Duke is always Duke. Uh, we were trying to rebuild uh, the year we beat uh, Duke in the garden. We were in a rebuilding stage. We had, um, I had a young man with me, one of the best players I ever coached, Marcus Hatton, another Baltimore guy. And, uh, you know, we're playing against Duke in the garden. And I'll never forget the day before the game, uh, uh, Billy Packer and those the guys that came to the uh, came to our practice out at St. John's, and we uh, we we were we were banged up. We weren't really we weren't a great talent. We, weren't a, we didn't have great talent, but we had great chemistry. And I remember them looking at each other and saying, "This team can't play against Duke. Duke's going to kill them." But the game game, you know, you got to play the game. So we played a game. And my, my whole thing that night was, guys, let's just, let's be in it. Let's keep ourselves in the game. Let's give ourselves a chance to win. So we did that. We, we hung in there and hung in there. And then all of a sudden, um, a couple of guys that normally didn't do things, did them. Uh, Anthony Glover, our power forward, hits a big time three. Um, you know, so the game is tight. Uh, 
you know, we're, we're having pretty good success pressuring their guards, JJ Reddick and, uh, you know, among others and Marcus Hatton, uh, does what only Marcus Hatton could do. Somehow he, 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 he goes, I don't know, he decoys, he fakes something. He's going to go one way, he goes the other, he steals the ball at the very, in the last seconds of the game, drives the full length of the court at the buzzer, he gets fouled. So he's going to the foul line. And I'll never forget, he goes to the foul line. Uh, I don't know if the game was tied or we were down one, I think. I was trying to think. We might have been down one. He makes the first one. So the game's tied. So now it just comes down to he's got one free throw left uh, to either win the game or the game goes to overtime. I don't want to go overtime because in overtime, I don't think we have a chance of winning. He goes to the line. I remember going down the end of the bench, kneeling down, looking away from the court and just closed my eyes and said, you know, I'm going to just listen and see what happens here. And when I heard the crowd erupt, I knew he had made the free throw. And you know what? We ended up winning that game. And then we went on a nice win streak, similar to what we had done when I was at GW after we beat the Rutgers. And we ended up that year going to the NIT and winning the NIT. So, you know, sometime one game, one play could turn the season around. You know, just like the pass from Billy Brigham to Yinka turning the 93 season around, the pass, the, the free throw that Marcus made at the end of the game, the steal and free throw, turn that season around. And, um, you know, sometimes you got to be lucky and blessed more so than good. And uh, we were lucky and blessed in both those situations. You know, as advanced to the NCAA tournament after winning the Big East tournament championship, despite uh, guys like Ron Artest turning pro, talk about being the hunted and what you remember about facing off against a first-year head coach and Mark Few and his Gonzaga team. Well, uh, you know, the, the, what I remember most about that trip was is how much I respected. I, I got to know Mark Few uh, personally before I ever got a chance to coach against him. But everything I had seen and heard was true, that he was an exceptional coach and he had exceptional teams. And the biggest, I think that game, I think if that game was probably played anywhere else, we might have won. But the NCAA decided to send my team uh, out West and basically have us play against teams from the West so we were at a huge disadvantage. Um, in fact, the first night we were really, I think, fortunate, lucky to win against Northern Arizona. Uh, Laval Postel hits a shot uh, just before the buzzer to give us a victory there. And then now we got to play against Gonzaga. Gonzaga's a better team. Gonzaga's got the place full with Gonzaga fans. And we, we started out pretty good and then got in foul trouble. The uh, game was officiated by West Coast guys for the most part. The way the game was officiated is a lot different uh, than the way the games were officiated up in the East. And uh, so it made us change our style a lot. Uh, but, you know, but nevertheless, it still was one of those games where we could have won. And uh, if we had made a couple of a little better adjustments, we probably would have won. If we'd won that game, never knows how far we could have gone because that team, um, was small, but that team was hungry. And, um, you know, I mean, our center was Anthony Glover, who was 
six four, six four and a half, but he was a man child. And we went through the month of February uh, and didn't lose a game. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, during that month, we, we had what we called Hell Week, where we beat Connecticut, um, Duke, and Syracuse in the same week. Uh, the only game we lost um, uh, after that was uh, a game at Miami. Uh, toward the end of the game, they beat us. We got them back in the Big East tournament, though. And uh, that team was, I mean, with Eric Barkley and Bootsy Thornton, uh, LeVar Postel, Anthony Glover. And if I center that year, Tyrone Grant had stayed healthy, I think that could have been a Final Four team. But anyhow, um, it was, it was, it was, that was a special, special team, a special year. And, um, you know, um, you know, great memories. You know, the next season you're fired in December, becoming the first head coach in the history of the conference to be fired mid season. You know, how did you take the news? How did your family take the news? And who were some of the people in your inner circle that you leaned on for support? Well, first of all, no one took the news well. I certainly didn't. Uh, my wife didn't. Uh, you know, it it, it, it it had everything to do with personalities. Uh, um, you know, the, the president of the university made the call. Um, you know, he didn't like a few things that I had said. I uh, took some of my remarks, Max as being derogatory of, of the school and, and, and maybe his leadership. So um, he'd been known to get rid of guys. So he, I was I was on his list, his hit list, uh, uh, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, uh, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. Um, you know, I don't know if I... I don't think I've got over it yet, to be honest with you. It certainly changed the course of, of our lives because um, I expected to coach for a long, long time. And, um, you know, if I had known, uh, obviously if I had a crystal ball, I would have probably got out of there a couple of years earlier. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I decided that I was going to try and fulfill my commitment uh, to the university. And uh, unfortunately, I was not able to do that. Um, you know, it's the first time I'd ever, I never thought that I'd ever get fired from anything, anywhere, anytime, to be honest with you. I mean, um, and that was a big mistake of mine, but uh, now you see more and more of that. Um, you know, you see coaches being let go uh, early on and many times it has nothing to do with basketball. Sometimes it does. Uh, in the case of St. John's, it wasn't even about basketball because, you know, we had a whole, whole brand new team and um, we were going to, I mean, we were actually going to be pretty good even that year, but, um, you know, it was never given that opportunity. Did any of the people that you considered friends not reach out to you? And I'm not asking to name names, but, and how much did those, how much did it mean for those true friends that did reach out? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I would, I, I got so much mail and so many phone calls from people inside and outside of the profession. Um, I mean, the coaching profession itself, I mean, starting with, you know, uh, guys like Roy Williams and Lute Olson and Mike Krzyzewski. I mean, those guys, I mean, they just, I mean, they were on the phone like immediately. I probably should have asked them guys for a job to be honest with you. 
because one of the biggest mistakes I made was not getting right back into it. And, um, but, you know, I think my ego, my pride prevented me from doing that. Um, but uh, the support in the, uh, was, was overwhelming, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, and I, I learned from that, that when, it, when, when those situations happened to guys that I knew, uh, uh, worked with, uh, coached against, that I would give them that call as well. And, uh, you know, I can remember making the call to some of the, some guys who were like, let go like I was. And um, so, you know, that, that's always good when, you, when your peers, you know, respect you enough to, to basically give you a call or send you a letter. I remember, in fact, uh, uh, George Blaney, who was the former head coach at Holy Cross and became Jim Calhoun's top assistant in Connecticut, he wrote me a letter. And I often refer to that as, a, he wrote me a love letter. And uh, it was about two pages, three pages long. And it was, I mean, it was an incredible letter that he wrote to me. And, um, you know, just telling me to hang in there and giving me some of his own experience because he had been let go, I think, at uh, Seton Hall. And, and when you get, when you hear from people like that, it really means a lot. You know, I know that you worked for ESPN and Yahoo Sports, uh, you know, when you weren't coaching. And then in addition to that stuff, you did public speaking, like you said, wrote two books, which happens to be two more than I can read. Yeah, same here. <laughs> what made you try your hand at that stuff? Well, to be honest with you, probably because I didn't know what else to do. I, I had, I wanted to stay busy. I wanted to, you know, to try and do something that would mean something and maybe share some of my experiences. So basically I, you know, I was able to, to I, I become involved with some people that, that uh, had passions for people, you know, Jonathan Peck and I wrote a book called skills for life. Uh, subtitle the fundamentals you need to succeed uh, then I worked with a young uh, writer by the name of Chad Bonham uh, and wrote everybody needs a head coach and the seven C's of leadership so all the books basically are about um, life skills about um, you know things like communication and all the things that coaches and players need to know about people need to know about uh, to try to be successful and uh, it's what I know. It's what I've done my whole life. So I figured, let me put it, let me try to get some of this stuff in writing. And then let's go out and let's talk. Let's share some of the experiences, some of the stories, some of the principles, and see if we can maybe make a difference. Florida Atlantic hires you after Rex Walters leaves for San Francisco. And from what Matt Doherty and Rex Walters have told me, it wasn't the fanciest setup down there. What was life as a mid-major head coach like after coaching at the Power Five level? But also, how did it feel to be back coaching a college basketball team? Well, first of all, it felt great to be coaching. Uh, but it is, uh, I'll tell you, I can't tell you the nights that I'd walk out on the court and my son rejoined me at Florida Atlantic. And we would walk out and we would look at sometimes hundreds of fans and we would just think back to the days when it would have been thousands of fans. We would think back to the days of, 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 a, of, a, of the of Madison Square Garden being full to capacity about playing at Duke, uh, playing at Syracuse in the, in the dome. And we would just giggle. We'd look at each other and laugh and say, hey, here we go. But at least we're, we're back on the court. 
So it was, I mean, uh, what, uh, what, a, what a ride. <laughs> and yes, it was, you know, you, our, our game facility would have been, was comparable probably to most play teams practice facility. But nevertheless, we were coaching and we loved it. And when the referee threw the ball up in the air, you didn't know whether or not you were in Madison Square Garden or in the FA arena. You went at it. I love it. And the team was in the good old fun belt. Uh, back then, you guys won the 2010-2011 regular season championship. You guys played yes. Miami in the NIT that season. Talk about how you and your son and the rest of the staff were able to construct a roster and retain players back uh, really before that one-and-done era and transfer portal era. I don't know. You know, it's funny. It's It was a different time. I mean, once again, this transfer portal, I don't know how teams, I don't know how colleges can, can deal with it. I I don't know. I'm sure that if they had it, uh, when I was the, even at FAU, I probably would have had players leaving to go elsewhere. Most of the time, when you got a player, you pretty much knew you were going to have them for the four years. Um, different times. Um, I don't know how coaches do it, to be honest with you. Um, but, you know, we were, we were, what we did when I was at Florida Atlanta, I hired a couple of young guys. I hired uh, Matt McCall, who's now the head coach at UMass, and uh, Tim Kane, who, um, uh, was at Murray State, and, and he's actually, uh, uh, I think, Coach uh, Kay's uh, godson. So I hired him, those two guys, and along with my son, and we 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 tried to recruit as much Radiant Florida as we could. That was we felt that was our best shot, and we got some really good players, you know, uh, to come to FAU, and we were able to put together a, a pretty successful basketball team, and. You know, had some good guard play and, you know, and uh, had a shot blocker by the name of Brett Royster uh, back in the championship team days. And uh, we were a little small, but we were good. And uh, we competed. We played defense. So it was a different – It was, but it was different. Coach, everybody has a legacy. What do you hope your legacy is about 50 years from now? Uh, you know, you've oh, had geez. such an accomplished career. Well, if 50 years from now, anybody remembers Coach Mike Jarvis, that, that would be quite astounding. Um, but I hope that if they do remember me, they basically would say, you know, he was a, he was a really good teacher. He was a really good coach. And his teams played hard. And they were fun to watch. And he was fun to watch. And boy, you know, I enjoyed reading his books. I enjoyed listening to some of his stories about growing up, about the Celtics, about the different teams he coached, the different people he coached against. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that uh, I hope that some of the memories and some of the things that, that have happened during my lifetime will live a long time, to be honest with you. Great stuff, Coach. Coach, I ask every guest, who are three guests I should have on the podcast that us young and aspiring coaches uh, can learn from? Well, I would say, to be honest with you, um, if I'm thinking about guys that you would have on, I don't, have, I don't know if you've had Jay Wright on, but I would want to have Jay Wright uh, on as a guest. If you could get John Calipari, I'd want to get John on and really just his journey has been incredible. Um, 
And I'm trying to think of who else would be really, really good. Maybe a um, a guy who may have like you get somebody like a, a Caron Butler, um, who's now coaching in the NBA. Uh, you know, maybe a Kyle Hobbs. Coach, what advice do you have for coaches either trying to get into the business or work their way up the coaching ranks? Oh, just to try to, uh, just I, I, I try to, I mean, the hardest thing is just getting in the door. So it's like, you got, it's all about relationships. So you got to try to find out who's connected to the person that you want to work with. You know, you got to peel that onion, that, that orange a little bit, try to find a connection because so many times jobs today go to those who know people who know people. So you got to find out who knows the person that you want to work for and how do I, how do I somehow get a conversation with them? And then you got to put together, you know, I think, a uh, you know, a really good reason why that person should even, first of all, talk to you and then let alone hire and you got to be prepared maybe to go and work for nothing, you know, to volunteer some time. If they got camps, maybe go and work at their camps. Uh, but just to get connected and to get connected to the people who are connected to those people. Great stuff. Coach, can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. If any listeners want to get in touch with you about speaking engagements, uh, you know, finding your books or uh, – making a great addition to their coaching staff. Uh, what's the best way to reach out, social media, email, what have you? I would say email uh, would be great. Um, it's real simple. Coach Mike Jarvis at Gmail. So my name with coach in front. Uh, and I would, like I said, I, I hope that, you know, there's somebody out there that, that may, you know, just may have an interest in contacting me. Um, but Best way, they send me an email saying, hey, coach, I want to talk to you about X, Y, or Z. Uh, give me a call. They leave their name and number. I'll get back to them, and we'll see where it goes. You never know. And, uh, you know, I always tell people if they're looking for a coach that, that they want to uh, work with that can help them and their team uh, get back to the basics so they can uh, uh, use the fundamentals that they need to be successful, I'm the guy call me, email me, and uh, I'm affordable. And, uh, you know, we can always work that out, okay? Coach, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and uh, candiness. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate five stars.